It's Wednesday, and what do we do on Wednesday here at District Sentinel Radio? We chip-chat. Two Sams are here with journalist and policy director at Defending Rights and Dissent, Chip Gibbons. It's another edition of Chip Chat. Of course, everything Chip says on the air is his own thoughts, not the organization he works for. Chip, I was, uh, I was uh, online, and I just decided to Google Chip Chat for fun. Oh. And there's an urban dictionary entry for chip chat. Uh-oh. Which Uh-oh. <laughs> it's not as bad uh, as you guys might think from the source, but uh, it basically describes chip chat as uh, useless banter at work usually about snacks like chips. I do like snacks and I do like talking about snacks. Yeah, so maybe, you know, moving forward, I, I mean, I think we should keep chip chat focused on the U.S. security state and how it operates at home and abroad. Uh, but I think we could incorporate a little bit more snack talk into Chip Chat, too. I, do, I am very good with snacks, as Sam Knight can attest to, because he came over to my house once and I had made a lot of snacks. I had made mm. nachos, uh, bourbon shrimp, crab ragoon. Do, do you remember, Sam? I, I do, in fact, remember this. I, I ate a lot of those snacks. And the snacks were all very good. Just because there's multiple other people, it was Saturnalia. It was not just I had Sam Knight over and made this excessive amount of food, but <laughs> it attest to my love of snacks. Not, well, nothing wrong with inviting Sam Knight over to make him an excessive amount of food, though. Yeah, general. I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> not right now. It would violate social distancing Yay! guidelines. Maybe not ever, but yes, I'll have multiple people over or you over any normal amount of snacks for two people, but I am not going to. Well, you've got a very high caliber snack game, Chip. I was thinking more along the lines of like pizza flavored goldfish, Pringles and Cheez-Its, and you're busting out bourbon shrimp and crab rangoon. Well, the crab ragoon was just like frozen. I heated it up in the oven, but the bourbon shrimp I, I made myself along with the nachos. I'm sure it was delicious. It was. Chip, what what's on your mind this week? What are we what are we well, talking about so, for Chip Chat? So this week I am thinking a lot about how even though the world is battling a deadly pandemic, which is requires sort of access increased access to medicine, the US continues its sanctions on Iran and Venezuela, and Israel is continuing its very cruel, very grotesque blockade of the Gaza Strip. I mean, the blockade of the Gaza Strip has always been extremely um, just vicious. I mean, the Israelis put it in place in 2007. You'll hear apologists for Israeli war crimes say, oh, it's about preventing weapons from going in, blah, 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 blah. But actually, the uh, Israel's own documents, which were re- leaked by a human rights group in sometime in the um, 2012-ish, I think, uh, you know, stated that the purpose was to put the Palestinians on a diet, right? It's about punishing the Palestinian people because in 2007 they elected in a democratic election Hamas. Uh, Israel and the United States tried to to remove Hamas by a coup. It failed. And then they put Gaza under this horrific blockade. And, and in 2020, as a result of the blockade, which is illegal under international law, the United Nations released a report 
saying that Gaza would be unlivable by the year of 2020. It's now 2020. Many of these dire predictions have come true. It's worth remembering that of the 1.9 million people who live in Gaza, 1.4 million of them are refugees for the United Nations. And that, you know, because of both the both the blockade as well as Israel bombing Gaza three times in the last decade, they have a severe electricity shortage. Uh, about 2018, 2017, we were seeing these stories that Gaza only had four hours of electricity a day. I was looking at the most recent UN figures, and it's up more to like 12 hours a day. But that's still, you know, you don't have electricity for a full day. And as a result, that's created uh, other uh, other um, crises as well, because you don't have electricity, water treatment plants, sewage treatment plants can't run like they should. And now there's an acute uh, water crisis. There's water damage being done by sewage that's probably going to end up being irreversible. And the health system had just been always on the verge of collapse. And with coronavirus, it's something like 12 or 13 people in, with, in Gaza have been diagnosed with that. If there's an outbreak of the coronavirus, like that will lead to the collapse of the healthcare system. They don't have enough ventilators. I believe I may have said already, it's one of the most densely populated places on earth, which makes the fact that Israel does these grotesque aerial bombardments, particularly cruel, it's an open air prison, but it also makes it very difficult for for social distancing. And while Israel is doing that with, with our taxpayer money, the U.S. is continuing to ratchet up tensions with with Iran and, and Venezuela. We saw this very ridiculous indictment of President Maduro for, for drug trafficking. Meanwhile, the uh, allied government of Honduras is probably actually tied to drug trafficking. We saw them put a bounty on his head and these ridiculous um, tweets from the U.S. Attorney's Office stating that if you have any information that can lead to the arrest of Maduro, they'll give you something like $10 million. And this is very eerily reminiscent of the situation during the invasion of Panama, where the U.S. invaded Panama, bombed the city, killed people, in order to, on this pretext of uh, serving a drug warrant against a sovereign head of a state, right? right? Imagine if someone tried to indict you know, Donald Trump in Iran, and as a result, they carpet bombed Washington, D.C., what our reaction would be. It would be justifiably quite, quite irate. Um, and, and, and I don't, I don't necessarily think we're, we're on the verge of a hot war with Iran. It's always tough to tell of these types of things. I mean, the U.S. has sent uh, more troops along the Colombian border. They've sent, you know, all these naval ships to the Caribbean, over the objection of the Department of Defense. And I think it has a lot of people on edge, and I think it's it's right to do so. But the U.S. does these types of troop mobilizations and sort of sending these, you know, Navy ships to terrorize and scaremonger uh, countries all the time. So it's, it's not clear if it's just, you know, more ratcheting things up or if they're actually prepared for a, for a hot war or, or what. Um, and it's also not clear what what the end game is here. It's possible Trump is just trying to distract from the fact that he is has blood on his hands because of the way he has botched the coronavirus response. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't put it past him to end up starting a war in order to try to distract from the fact that he's, you know, responsible for the deaths of a lot of people. 
the U.S. is continuing to sanction Venezuela. Uh, the U.S. human rights chief has come out and, and called for the sanctions to, to be lifted against all countries or eased up. You know, and I think it's really important that when we talk about sanctions, we, we recognize that they're not an alternative to war, right? Like I remember in the lead up to the uh, George W. Bush invasion of Iraq, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not people in the anti-war movement should embrace sanctions because they seem like a nonviolent alternative. They're short of war. Saddam Hussein's a bad guy, et cetera, et cetera. But the U.S. and the U.K., have, I mean, so, so after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1990, the U.N. Security Council imposes sanctions on him. But because the U.S. and the U.K. have a veto over the Security Council, they won't let them lift the, the sanctions. The initial reason they give is that because Saddam wants to dis won't disarm, but we know the U.S. likely concluded Saddam Hussein disarmed in 1992, and by like 1997, Clinton had given up the game here, saying that the sanctions would remain on Iraq until the end of time or until Saddam Hussein is out of power. And they killed people, like 500,000 children under the age of five died because of the sanctions. Two different UN career officials resigned, saying they were genocide. So sanctions are really quite violent. I also want to note that by the end of the Clinton administration, the U.S. was bombing Iraq once every three days and spending $1 billion to do so. But like the point being, you know, sanctions are not a nonviolent alternative to war. They target civilian populations. They cause death. They're generally aimed at regime change by inflicting misery on a civilian population that has nothing to do with the government, which is very grotesque and, and very cruel. And, you know, right now, Iran is struggling with the coronavirus pandemic like everyone else. It's, it's particularly bad there. And all kinds of human rights groups and international officials are saying the sanctions are making it worse. The sanctions are making it worse. And and what do we see happening? We see the U.S. ratcheting up the sanctions as opposed to heeding the calls of the rest of the world in order to prevent this. And both Iran and Venezuela have recently gone and done something quite surprising for both nations. They've gone to the International Monetary Fund to ask for loans to, to com help combat the coronavirus because their countries are so destroyed by, by these sanctions. I mean, Venezuela has not requested IMF aid since 2001. Iran has not requested corona, uh, not coronavirus aid, IMF aid since 1960. So these are extraordinary moves by both countries. And in both countries, the IMF has blocked their request for aid. With the case of, the, of Iran, they were actually backed in their aid request or their loan request to the IMF by the European Union. But the U.S. is still blocking and, and denying it. And, you know, the U.S. shouldn't be sanctioning any of these countries. But the sanctions against Iran are particularly insidious because why are we sanctioning Iran? We lifted the sanctions as part of the, the nuclear deal, even though the U.S.'s own intelligence assessment starting in, I believe, 2007 had said Iran had long since given up any sort of nuclear weapons program, but, you know, table that for a minute. Um, and we sanctioned them, and then they signed this agreement, and we lifted the sanctions, and Trump unilaterally withdraws. Trump broke the agreement, not Iran, and then we put sanctions on them. Like, there's, 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 we have no right to sanction Iran, but it's particularly disgraceful given the fact that we're breaking the agreement we had with them. And there's just no point to this 
at all. There's no justification. And it's it's killing people. Well, the the pain is is the point. And it's important yes. to, to note how isolated the U.S. is when it comes to the Iranian sanctions. I mean, you brought up the sanctions on Iraq and how the U.K. was on board with that and how uh, you know, we, when we went to war in Iraq, uh, we seemed yeah. pretty isolated, but the UK was on board with that. Uh, with these sanctions on Iran, uh, the UK a few weeks ago even uh, urged the US to drop these sanctions, along with uh, most of the other countries in the world. Um, and yet the US still uh, insisting and in fact ramping them up. Yeah, I mean, it's really very shocking. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to pretend like Trump is not part of a larger uh, problem in U.S. policy. But Trump has obviously been particularly fixated on Iran, particularly fixated on pulling out of the Iran deal. He has consistently staffed his administration with Iran hawks, and he's just very much gunning for them. And, and the rest of the world is clearly not interested in it, right? They're, they were part of the um, Iran nuclear deal, and it was, by all accounts, working and we just went and blew it up, right? And I, 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 to their credit, I mean, the rest of the world is not terribly interested in going along with that. I mean, they could be more aggressive in standing up to sort of the U.S. just menacing Iran the way it does. I don't have a lot of high hopes for the EU countries or the U.K. on this sort of regards, but, you know, we are isolated on this issue. You're correct. Unfortunately, uh, we don't seem to be fully isolated on the Venezuela issue. And we have a lot of countries in the uh, EU, and the EU itself, I think, as an organization, Canada, uh, et cetera. A lot of rich countries uh, have backed the US in trying to overthrow Maduro and trying to do regime change in Venezuela. And uh, I'm wondering how you weigh that against the uh, the outrage and the opposition, or I guess outrage isn't the right word, but the but the opposition from the international community, quote unquote, on the uh, Iran issue. Like, at one point, are are we going to get any of these countries standing up to the U.S. and uh, we see them frustrated on the Iran issue, and yet there they go uh, with the Trump administration on Venezuela, pretty much all the way. Well, it's it's really interesting what you bring up because we also have seen that dynamic play out domestically as well. There is a lot of there's more outcry than usual against these sanctions on Iran, but there's a lot of silence on Venezuela. So even people who are willing to speak up against these sanctions against Iran are for whatever reason going along with US Venezuela policy, which I mean it just goes to show you how demonized the government of Venezuela is in, in the US. I mean, we don't have a right to target or, or overthrow, you know, either of those two governments. But Venezuela is, 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 is you know, a very different political system than than the one in, in, in Iran. I'm not justifying these sanctions against Iran, but it's odd almost that of the two countries, the one that we would would single out for, you know, for for punishment or being okay with is is Venezuela. And it just goes to show you like the massive propaganda blitz against Venezuela that exists in this country and the sort of bipartisan recognition that sort of Venezuela's Bolivarian revolution, their leadership during the Pink Tide or, or still leadership in, in the Pink Tide has just been really threatening to the U.S. 
and sort of neoliberal world order, and that that's just not tolerable. You brought up the invasion of Panama. Um, are, are you afraid that that the decision to charge Maduro with uh, narco-terrorism uh, could be a sign that U.S. forces may invade the country down the road. I mean, we we seem to had, uh, I guess, lowered the temperature on the attempts to launch a coup in Venezuela since last year, and it failed. But this is a new move that happened at the end of March amidst a pandemic. Here, what do you think it portends? I don't. I don't know. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, I think it is worth pointing out that this is the process by which we justified and paved the war, paved the way for the war in Panama. On the other hand, I mean, in, invading Venezuela would be disastrous, almost certainly, from the perspective of the U.S. Obviously, that didn't stop them from, you know, carrying out the Vietnam War for a long time after it was clear it was. You know, not ever going to go well for the U.S. It didn't stop us from invading Iraq. And to be clear, you know, both of those conflicts were immoral wars of aggression, regardless of how well they went for the U.S. military. But you know, it it, it was very clear with Iraq from the beginning that it would be a disastrous invasion. And I, I think that so I I don't know. They don't always have good planning uh, when it comes to war making. So I I don't know. It's hard to. On the one hand, it's hard to imagine anyone being so stupid as to do that. And I do remember during the Bush years, you know, he was always sending these these sort of, you know, naval destroyers or, or aircraft carriers, you know, right off the coast of Iran and international waters to sort of threaten them. And a lot of people thought that was going to that was the prelude to a war. And it, it wasn't. So we do do these types of aggressive maneuvers without going straight into a war. And I, I don't want to, like, overly concern monger here, but I, I certainly think we should be on the alert. Chip, we have a lot of right-wingers right now who uh, seem pretty keen on now. demonizing China. Has that, uh, do you have any thoughts on that and how that might uh, shake out in terms of matters of war and peace? Or do you have your eye on that issue? Yeah, I mean, it's clear that there's some sort of movement within the U.S. political establishment that basically wants a new Cold War with China. It's clear that certain people are using the coronavirus in order to whip up a lot of xenophobia and just sort of demonize the government of China in a way that is certainly conducive to that sort of long-term plan. Uh, It's certainly very disturbing and unsettling. Chip Gibbons, journalist, policy director at Defending Rights and Dissent. You've got an event coming up. I do. Tell the audience about it. Sure. On Thursday, April the 16th, I am going to be moderating an event jointly sponsored by Defending Rights and Dissent and The Nation. It is a virtual town hall, since we are not doing in-person events anymore. Uh, on civil liberties in the age of the coronavirus. There's going to be a lot of good panelists, including Ken Klippenstein of The Nation, who's done a lot of very good exposés about sort of how CB, how the uh, Custom and Borders Patrol and ICE are responding to the coronavirus in really horrendous ways. 
Alex Vitale, the author of The End of Policing, will be joining us to talk about, you know, what, what does the coronavirus mean for, for policing? We'll also be joined by Sarah Lazar of In These Times, who wrote a very excellent piece on how the U.S. military is not the response, to, not not the correct response to the coronavirus. I had an excellent piece in, in These Times yesterday uh, with Adam, she co-wrote with Adam Johnson about how the adults in the room have not really helped us with coronavirus. And there'll be other panelists as well. I, I urge people to check out the event and they'll be streamed on Facebook Live. So you do not have to leave your house. Chip Gibbons, uh, do you have any uh, final recommendations for sweet snacks? We talked about some salty snacks at the beginning of the segment. Uh, when you're having a bit of a sweet tooth, what do you go for? I don't know. I'm more of a savory snack kind of person. All right. Well, you've uh, left half the audience disappointed here. I'm sure I've left more than half the audience disappointed on more than one occasion. <laughs> Chip, this concludes another edition of Chip Chat. Thank you so much. Thank you.